Good morning, Twitter. I am Isaac Fitzgerald. He is Saeed Jones. It's Tuesday, and you are watching AM to DM. Welcome to September, children. Welcome to fall. No, three uh, more weeks of summer. <laughs> three more weeks of summer. Are you ready for Christmas? Okay. <laughs> Isaac is back from vacation. Hey, gang. It's been so long, guys. Oh, so long. Did um, you miss me? I did. Oh. I did. And I'll, yeah, okay. All right. I'll give you this moment. Um, all hell broke loose while you were gone. Woo. So no more vacations. <laughs> A lot happened. <laughs> I understand that. Here's my thing. My yeah. approach to social media when I'm on vacation is like I want to show the vacation I'm taking. I'm, I, I kick it old school is the way I put you it. Do? It's you very do. like Twitter 2009. It's very personal. Here's what I'm having for lunch. Mm-hmm. Here's where I'm hanging out. Um, and I try and stay like disengaged okay. from like the conversation. That's smart because it is the cold turkey social media method on vacation doesn't always work. So yeah. you're kind of like, I'm not totally out. Yeah. But also, how am I supposed to brag about this cool new jacket I got? You know, like, so it's a good jacket, guys. <laughs> it's a very good jacket. All right, but but that's what I'm saying. I tried to stay disengaged. Mm-hmm. But let me tell you, this past weekend, so much was happening, I felt myself starting to get pulled good. back in. Because I was like, I'm not doing this on my own anymore. <laughs> Reading all these crazy tweets. Yeah, it was nuts. It was just like, it was a lot. It was the, a lot going The on. New Yorker thing kind of dra- brought me in. Mm-hmm. I won't lie, I was watching the Aretha Franklin uh, funeral oh, yeah. a little bit. Um, and then the New Yorker day. thing really pulled me in. Mm-hmm. And then the Nike stuff, and I was just like, ugh. It's just a lot. Yeah. It's just a lot. We'll only be able to get to a bit of it. So let's go. (laughs) It was a long weekend. Colin Kaepernick and Nike. Let us begin there, friends. Uh, Here's a tweet with some context from Jamel Hill. I'm just here to remind folks that last year Colin Kaepernick was in the top 50 in NFL jersey sales. I imagine that's Mm -hmm. a lot of money being made. Despite not even being on a roster, Nike made a business move. A business move. Money move. Could you imagine if Saeed Jones jerseys were just selling out even though you were never on a team? They are. <laughs> they are. No, but yeah. that, it made That's sense. A good point. It, it's a financial decision, right? And I saw your tweet about this a little bit. Because it's Nike. It's still a corporation. They're still trying to make money. So you're like, oh, you want to give them... Uh, uh, uh. It's like, it's a good decision. It's still a giant corporation. Yeah. To get back to Jamel Hill's point, I think, and you know, because also Serena Williams, mm-hmm. I think now it says something about where we are in 2018 that honestly, the simplest, most keen, obvious business decision, support the greatest living athlete, Serena Williams, support, you know, the most outstanding NFL you know, figure, political, player, who, political like everyone conversation. who has such integrity, that makes sense with Colin Kaepernick, feels radical and stunning, mm-hmm. you know? And I think this is why it's such huge. So I'm happy for him, but I'm just like, yeah, Nike girl, I'm not I'm not inviting Nike to brunch. That's what I'm trying to say. Like, you're I'm happy res- about you're it. You're respecting the decision. <laughs> yeah. You're not inviting them to brunch. <laughs> I'm not gonna like name my like godchild after Nike, but <laughs> but you know, happy, happy for Colin Kaepernick. <laughs> I like that you think you get to name your godchild. Yeah. That's how it works. <laughs> but Listen, not everybody was stoked on it. That's true. We got to talk about the backlash, the sock mm. lash, mm. darling. The sock um, lash. Yes. Uh, Justin Horwitz tweeted, Horwitz tweeted, uh, the same people saying liberals get easily offended um, are literally destroying their wardrobes and cutting the clothes off their body while they're still wearing them <laughs> because a black athlete appeared in one advertisement. Yeah. That. Also, that's the most important part of the sock. I'm just saying, listen, there are better ways to cut that out. That's all I'm saying. You could have cut that swoosh out, but left the elastic band. That person had very uncomfortable... Because the socks just fall down. That's all I'm saying. Also, I feel like 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 black electrical tape around the swoosh. There were smarter ways to do it. There were smarter ways to do it. But to wit, John Rich tweeted, our sound man just cut the Nike swoosh off his socks. Former Marine, get ready, Nike. Multiply that by the millions. <laughs> the millions. Okay, girl. The millions. The drama that John Rich thought he was ensuing. Well, I'm excited about all this because I saw a tweet at 5.45 a.m. It's DM to me. Thank you, Mark. Um, it's by David Rudin, and I am so excited to read it. <coughs> Cut my socks into pieces. <laughs> this is my last resort. I did love that song Stop. back in the day. Stop. I'm just going to keep doing that. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't hum it because look. I'm very impressed. You love that song back in the day? Yeah. I want to learn how to do the like this. Okay. All right. Listen, that socks. 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 The whole Nike thing. It brings us to this tweet from Paul F. Tompkins. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to shut that down. Hey, you never should have disinvited Steve Bannon from your festival. My dad was in the Navy. Get ready, New Yorker, for pictures like this in the trillions. And look at those. I love, I love that he drew the New Yorker logo on Which, the Which, you know, isn't easy to do, the little dandy. Up until yesterday, I feel like the New Yorker probably could have sold some socks. <laughs> you ready? You ready? No, I'm not ready! 
everybody, let's talk about this damn festival. Mm. Drew, you tweeted, hoping that AM to DM might want to spend a bit of airtime this week talking about the New Yorker's horrible, no good, very bad business decision to Steve Bannon on their festival lineup. Yes. You now, called it, Drew. Let's be clear. The New Yorker has since rescinded Bannon's invite after numerous headliners promised to drop out. Shout out to John Mulaney mm. for being the very first. Uh, but yes, let's talk about this. <sighs> first things first. Maybe the quickest thing to happen in the news cycle for a little while. It was like announced in the morning, immediate anger, rescinded in the afternoon, done by the evening. Yeah, and then Malcolm Gladwell's like, well, wait, wait, wait. Yeah, no, <laughs> I took a nap late afternoon and woke up and was like, you know, and just, I had missed a whole bunch of stuff. It mm -hmm. happened very, very, very quickly. Yeah. Uh, it was fascinating. Ve many people were upset. Mm -hmm. Many people threatening to cancel their subscription. I saw a lot of people screenshotting actually canceling mm -hmm. their New Yorker subscription. Uh, you also had New Yorker staff who seemed to be very surprised by the decision taking to the timeline to let their feelings be known. Other staff members were like, hey, I'm not saying anything here, but but please know I'm saying things internally. Mm -hmm. um, and it seemed like a lot of people were caught off guard, including the venue. Uh -huh. The venue made a statement that was like, whoa, 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 we had this, like, the New Yorker Festival mm -hmm. basically asked us to allot this space, but we didn't we know who was gonna no be speaking. Idea. We had yeah. no idea. So let me, let me drag David Remnick on this for a moment. And actually, we didn't even talk about this during rehearsal. No, I'm hey, very excited. asshole, maybe don't do this to your own staff on Labor Day. Mm. Maybe don't surprise mm. literally everyone in the newsroom, everyone mm. on the masthead, the venues, the PR team. Every, maybe don't do this on Labor Day where literally the entire point is people are supposed to have a, like, day off. a break from your wealthy tomfoolery. Yeah. It's just a little crazy. I'm going to give you stamps on that. I'm going to give you just stamps on maybe that. Maybe something to think about the next mm. time you want to have a chit chat with the white nationalist on stage. Well, Washington Post national reporter Dave Weigel joins us now to talk about the New Yorker's new cycle. Uh, good morning, Dave. Good morning. Thanks for not no platforming me. I appreciate it. All right. You know, <laughs> act right now. Act right now, Dave. Okay. We will pull the plug. I, I mean, I, to start, what did you, <laughs> what did you make of David Rimnick's statement? Uh, he buried the lead is the first thing, right? I mean, it was a very, it was a very New Yorker statement where everyone was looking for the news and looking for the news and kind of in the final paragraph, he says, oh, and by the way, we're not going to do this interview. Uh, but uh, he did seem taken aback. There's this discrepancy, right, between people affected by what they see as as, as Bannon's worldview, what he says is his worldview, which is very nationalist, which is uh, immigrants get out, we're gonna we got out, we got ours, and people who are intellectually interested in this, right? There's just a kind of coldness about, well, you know, this is a a figure we've trying to get a been trying to get on the phone for quite a while, and we have a chance to talk to him. Yeah, we, no one wanted to hear that. Um, and also, Bannon's just not hard to interview. I was surprised at that verbiage about how much they'd set this up. He does an interview a week. He does an exclusive, I should say, exclusive interview once a week with somebody with a ton of, uh, of, of promotion. And he says the same stuff. That's he, a good point. I hadn't thought about that. And he says yeah. the same stuff. Yeah. And I think that's yeah. a very good point, too. Mm. I got to ask, yeah. let's, let's step before the statement was released. Let's go all the way back sure. to early yesterday yeah, morning. 12 hours ago. Do you think Remnick was surprised by this reaction? And if so, how? I think he was because Bannon has been doing this sort of event with no backlash up to now. I mean, he Financial Times had him, and they had a little bit of a controversy, but not much of one. The Economist is going to have him, I think, the same month as the New Yorker Festival. And the guy's been on kind of a, I wouldn't call it a rehab tour. It's, it's, a, it's a strange sort of reputational rehab tour where people have him on with the the promise of, you know, we're going to hold this guy to account. He's doing his first Sunday new, Sunday interview live, and we're going to ask him about Charlottesville. We're going to ask about Trump. And every time he just kind of steamrolls over the questions, and um, my, as, as somebody who cares about the news, my, my beef is he, ne he always describes kind of a fantasy version of Trump that doesn't exist. Uh, one who is like a New Deal president, a populist, who's acting on all these policies that do not match up with what he's doing in real life. But people just seem to get rolled over. So I think there'd been a built... Um, a frustration building, especially among this elite group of people who subscribe to New Yorker. And I think, but what's their average? You know, we have we have their data on who the readership is. They make like a hundred thousand, hundred ten thousand dollars a year. They all have degrees. They were not interested. They were also more liberal leaning. They were not interested in hearing from this guy again. I think Remnick misunderstood how much his audience was tired of seeing this again and again in other forms. They didn't want to pay for it at theirs. Mm -hmm. And we'll get to Malcolm Gladwell in a moment because it is that is yeah. an interesting new facet. But I did want to ask, and you, you noted this, the idea of deplatforming. Um, yeah. Does that work? Um, is it working in this? Does that apply here, I guess? 
I'm not even taking a position on whether it's good or not. I'm just, I just was uh, joking because there was a discussion a year and a half ago. Uh, you know, I think every New York Times op-ed page had a column of the, the shame of college students refusing to let Charles Murray speak or uh, Miley Yiannopoulos, et cetera, et cetera. And in the long run, if you if, if one of your goals is getting this kind of nationalist, white nationalist conversation off your campus, out of your... Oh, do did we, we lose you, Dave? Dave? Did we lose you? Look like it froze up. Say, saying this is oh, horrible, oh, uh, then there's not much of a response. Mm -hmm. Then there's not much of a response. All right, now let's, but let's talk Gladwell. Uh, Dave, last night, Malcolm Gladwell belatedly jumped into the, fr oh, oh. Did, we did we lose Dave? Okay, uh, well, let's talk about Gladwell. All right, well, you and I can talk about Gladwell. Uh, listen, Malcolm Gladwell last night tweeted, call me old fashioned, but I would have thought that the point of a festival of ideas was to expose the audience to ideas. If you only invite your friends over, it's called a dinner party. Yeah. And what then, do you make of yeah, that? Yeah, and he tweeted again just an hour ago. So mm -hmm. he's really kind of in, and again, he's tweeting this after Rimnick's statement. That's why I think it's interesting. I'm like, okay, your editor-in-chief has kind of made this statement, uh, announced it to your newsroom, and you're like, but let's actually just kind of keep, I mean, first of all, uh, uh, Dave, do you have you for a second? Hi. I'm being censored, but, uh, but not oh. anymore. <laughs> you're We're free. not trying to deplatform you. Free. We're not trying to deplatform you. We promise we wouldn't do that to you, Dave. I don't know if you heard me, but basically I just read the Malcolm Gladwell tweet from last night, and Syed right. was mentioning he just tweeted an hour ago saying about the McCarthy debate. Mm -hmm. what, what do you make of all that, that argument, that it's like inviting friends over for dinner if you only invite like-minded people? I think it's kind of an outdated argument considering where we are right now. Uh, it, it, I live in D.C. It's a, I'm in the office of the Post right now, and uh, this this city's changed a lot. There used to be just kind of a concordance. You saw this with McCain funeral, right? Everyone pining for the day when ideas could just be vetted and people could have dinner with each other and discuss these. There are some ideas that, I mean, had Trump lost, uh, it's very clear that Paul Ryan and the Republicans would have said, well, the extremism of people like Steve Bannon has no place in American society. You know, after, after Charlottesville, Bannon's not there, but a lot of white nationalists are. Um, there's an agreement. Those guys have no role in society. One of my um, most strongest memories from Charlottesville, I wasn't at this, but saw the video, is of uh, one of the organizers trying to hold a press conference and people just running up and disrupting it and chasing him away. Not very, is that is that up to our highest ideals? Is it up to like the West Wing theory that if you just out logic somebody, you're going to win in the long run? It's not. But uh, there for a lot of people who feel very threatened for, for I think, legitimate reasons. Uh, that those old ways of just having breaking bread with people and trying to understand them don't make sense. And uh, I could I keep on back to 2016 repeating myself a little bit, but I feel like had Trump not won, uh, the, the discussion over some of the ideas advanced by Bannon, and I'm talking about the stuff he goes to Europe and advances, like mm -hmm. let's stop getting refugees in the country, uh, let's start kicking people out, that would be seen as as too toxic to put on TV. Maybe maybe like Phil Donahue. Uh, in the 80s would make fun of it for 20 minutes. And the idea that you now need to elevate this with the rest of liberal, high-minded discussion, I think, is offensive to people. Right. And as some people noted, it's like, it's not like he's Stephen Miller. He's still a part of the administration and everything. He's not. Yeah. We're injecting him unnecessarily. Let's talk about. Yeah, that's the news value part of this, too. That he's just like a guy who talks now. He's not actually connected to the president. So you're, you're just having him there. Was it Mulaney said it was like a P.T. Barnum event? And it felt like Steve Miller would have been controversial, but defensible. Steve managed just on a tour to talk about his his nationalism. I mean, good for him. That doesn't deserve a, that position everywhere from New York's perspective. Yeah, he's just a human rash wearing five yeah. shirts. P.T. Bannon. Yeah, P.T. Okay. Bannon. Wow. Um, well, <laughs> let's talk about what the human rash himself has had to say. Ben Mullen at the Wall Street Journal spoke with Bannon after he was disinvited from the, ban um, from the festival, and uh, he said this. In what I would call a defining moment, David Rimnick showed he was gutless when confronted by the howling online mob. So when we take a step back and from this whole bizarre 24-hour news cycle, as Isaacs pointed out, was this whole New Yorker festival situation a win-win for Bannon? Uh, I don't think so. Well, so th these were the options that Remnick created for himself. He was either going to have a festival tank because the guests people wanted to see were, were leaving. If you look at the ticket prices for these two, they were going to lose a lot of money but from all these cancels. I think John Mulaney was $80 a ticket. That was either going to happen or you're going to have one news cycle where Bannon's saying, the, yeah, I'm, I'm too hot for, for, for these people. They can't open their minds. They can't have a reasonable debate. But as I was saying, he's already doing the Economist Festival. He does an interview every week. He has an Errol Morris documentary coming out where I think Errol Morris sat with him for three days or something using his Interotron. 
he's he can get his opinion out there. I mean, this is I think for a lot of people, especially I'm somebody who uh, came up with the the internet, and before I was a professional journalist, I could publish something, people could see it. It just doesn't clock with a lot of people that you are being silenced if literally every platform does not publish you or give you a chance to talk. No, you can talk somewhere else. It's just not that big of a deal. Um, in in the scheme in the scheme of our national debate, there is no First Amendment right to speak at this festival versus another one. Absolutely. I think that's a very good point. Dave, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Dave. Okay, we got a lot of tweets from you already about this. We want to hear more. What do you make? Sorry, I was totally looking at the wrong camera. I'm back here. I'm back here. It's all right. You have it a Monday morning Girl, on a Tuesday. Listen, I told you I was shook. What do we make of all this? Were you going to cancel your New Yorker subscription? Uh, do you think you still might? Like even, you know, even with the disinvitation, you're just not into it. Um, are you simply asking yourself, what is the New Yorker? Uh, <laughs> let us know using the hashtag AM2, you played yourself. You played yourself, that's true. All right, well listen, Jack Dorsey is headed to Capitol Hill this week, which makes this news all the more interesting. Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey has reportedly personally weighed in on content decisions at the company and even overruled staff to allow Alex Jones to remain on the platform and reinstate Richard Spencer's once suspended account. Richard Spencer's back? Surprise, bitch. Oh, I did not know. Senior technology reporter for BuzzFeed News, Charlie Warzel, joins us now. Charlie, good morning, darling. I'm a card-carrying member of the Howling Online Mob, so... <laughs> That's true, and that's why you're in Montana, in that bunker. Um, how does this Wall Street Journal story fit in with what we've been learning about Jack Dorsey and Twitter as a company's approach to users like Alex Jones and Richard Spencer? Um, I think that the, the biggest revelation from this story is the fact that, you know, it seems like at least one of his own employees is uh, is sort of, you know, leaking this kind of stuff to the Wall Street Journal. Uh, it seemed like a relatively thinly sourced piece. It seemed like it was coming this uh, this idea that, you know, Jack Dorsey personally intervened to overrule people it seemed like that came from. Um, one person and that it might have been secondhand. So I, you know, I can't really speak to the credibility of that anecdote necessarily. But I think what's interesting here is that there are, it seems that there's, there are people inside Twitter and this kind of jives with what I've heard, uh, from, from sources that, that are really unhappy with the way that the whole Alex Jones thing was handled and, uh, and feel, I think that, you know, they need to speak up. So this story was, you know, planted out there for a reason. Mm. And plays out there for a reason. Charlie, I do have to ask this. Let's say, let's say that this is tr true um, and that Jack is making these calls. Isn't this just what executives do? Mm. Don't they sometimes override their staff to make these decisions? Is this so out there? I, I don't necessarily think it is. And, if, you know, frankly, we don't have a, a great window into how how decisions like this are are actually made. Um, we uh, we published a story uh, last year that sort of showed the behind the scenes when it, uh, when Twitter was you know, deciding whether to ban Milo uh, or not. This is back in 2016. And there was a long email chain in which they were discussing. And it seemed like they actually were, you know, really taking into account these ideas of precedent and, uh, and you know, how serious things really were. Um, I, it makes sense to me that he would that he would be involved in a, in a high profile decision like that. Um, Twitter, of course, is saying that, you know, they have a, a real rubric for, for this kind of stuff. And uh, that, you know, that they told me a couple of weeks ago when I met with them that people hadn't been reporting uh, Alex Jones for these violations until he sort of came up in the news more. And then people were retroactively reporting his old tweets. And they were saying, basically, we didn't have the ability to make these decisions beforehand. Um, and when we did learn about it, we, you know, we, we decided to try to take some action and they, they banned him for, or they suspended him for seven days. But, you know, I, I really think what this all just speaks to the fact that we're sitting here right now talking about it, kind of confused, is that Twitter doesn't necessarily have a um, a real uh, you know step by step plan for this kind of stuff that they implement for everyone. It seems like a real kind of um, case by case basis situation still, and it, they message that that's not true, but I, I think it might still be. Okay, and so with all that said, Jack Dorsey is going to Capitol Hill this week to testify. So <laughs> what do you think he should expect in terms of his reception there? 
I mean, I think it's going to be a shit show pretty much. Um, I think that, uh, that, you know, you're going to have, uh, people who, uh, on one side of the aisle who are, you know, saying that Twitter isn't protecting their users enough from people like Alex Jones and sort of letting abhorrent views on the platform to silence others. And then you're going to have, uh, people on, on the, the right side of the aisle saying, uh, furthering this thing that we keep talking about here on this program, which is this conservatives being censored. So I think, both sides are going to scream at him. Um, I think there's going to be very little revealed by Twitter. Um, I think we're all going to leave unsatisfied and we'll just continue to use this website to, uh, you know, be the howling mob. Be, to be the howling mob. Listen, speaking of which, you also tweeted about the New Yorker Festival over the weekend, your part as the howling mob. You noted the Bannon New Yorker thing only further illustrates to me that the media still doesn't really know what to do with trolls and the MAGA universe. Still struggling with the important distinction between newsworthy coverage and just like turning folks into thought leaders. Uh, so Charlie, from festivals to timelines, let's let's wrap this all up into a nice little bow. We Are, we, we're gonna try. Okay. Are you surprised <laughs> to see Jack Dorsey and David Remnick kind of making similar decisions. You know, I think that that there's uh, there's two different things going on here. Jack Dorsey runs this, you know, this technology company with all these really difficult moderation decisions that, uh, that honestly, you know, go from leaving, you know, really heinous people up to people who are sort of, you know, uh, in a in a gray area. Um and, and I think that the, the New Yorker Festival is sort of a different thing. But the one way that I guess that you could tie it all together is this idea that that there are a lot of, and, and Dave was talking about this earlier, there are a lot of these bad faith actors that are out there that are never going to meet you on a, uh, you know, uh, on a, a meeting of the minds. You're, they're never going to have this, this great, you know, conversation and break bread like that because there's this one side that just doesn't want to, and they want to win at all costs. And I think that there's a lot of people still in technology, in newsrooms who aren't really ready to grapple with that and understand that. Um, and, I think that, you know, really we have to sort of have people who are making these decisions who have a really good understanding of the internet culture, fever swamp driven uh, way that we're conducting politics now. So, it, you know, if there's anything that ties those two things together, I think it's that. Absolutely. Well, Charlie, as always, thank you for joining the Howling Mob this morning. Happy to do it. All right. We got a tweet here from uh, Petite KB. Love when AM to DM is spicy in the morning. Mm. Me too, darling. Spicy. Woke me up. <laughs> Woke me up. Well, stay tuned. We got some more spice coming for you, girl. All right. Later in the show, you'll see my sit-down interview with the delightful comedian Nick Dodani. Mm. And this week, spicy, we've got D-Ray McKesson, Woo. Lil Rel, Noah Centineo. Did you know this? Spicy, spicy, Did you spicy. know Pete Kavinsky was coming? I did, man. Yeah. I, 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 I logged off, but I didn't log off that hard. I like it, baby child. I'll talk to you later. <laughs> Coming up, we're of course going to talk with Chris Geithner about the Kavanaugh hearings. Ooh. They started and it's already wild. It's, it's already wild. Up next, fire tweets. <laughs> Just a lot going on. my queens. All right, we have a tweet here from Brielle. Uh, I think she's watching for the first time this morning. Good morning. Uh, is this the male version of Kathy Lee Griffith and Hoda? Ooh. Yes. I mean, if this was a wine glass, <laughs> got coffee in here, sadly. I drink LaCroix, but mm. you know. Why you always got to out-bougie me? <laughs> All right, let's get into these fire tweets. <laughs> Elizabeth, you tweeted, I bet the guy who named the sperm whale wasn't allowed to name things anymore after that. <laughs> mm. That's just, that's what I'm talking A good, classic, funny tweet. Just, you nasty. Nah, it makes me laugh. Well, I guess it would be old time, so like, ye nasty. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I like go. that you went like Moby Dick on let's it. Let's keep going. Okay. <laughs> Kelly, um, I'm going to hell. Does anyone need anything? Ooh. Pick you up some? some that's stuff? just, that's just nice. The hell store? Yeah. <laughs> Something for mosquito bites, perhaps? <laughs> uh, yeah, an exit out of it. That's what I need. Okay. All right, here okay. we go. <laughs> Auntie Donahue, you tweeted, in 2007, if you wore a long sleeve t-shirt under a regular t-shirt, it meant that you liked music. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's just facts. Did you do that? You... I totally did that. Yeah, you know I, totally, I did that. With the, the thermal shirt. Oh, man, the thermal... Mm -hmm. And here's the thing. I would say it was 2007, but I think... It, I would say it went back to the 90s. Yeah, I would say like maybe closer to middle school. That waffle thermal? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. I'm the, learning so much about the white. Cut my life uh -huh. into pieces was mm -hmm. a, Yeah, yeah. Were you a rocker a, boy? <laughs> I was trying to sleep with some of them. It was a weird commitment. 
You know, Texas, <laughs> thermal wind. Anyway, okay. anyway, sorry. It's, like, it's just like, what is happening? Okay, it is Beyonce's birthday. You thought we forgot, but we didn't. It is 9 4 2018. Mm. So, B Day, we have some special fire tweets to celebrate Beyonce. Let's go. Jeff Melts. Oh, okay. The queen. The devil, the devil works hard. Chris Jenner works harder. Mm -hmm. Beyonce works hardest. That's yes. No Virgo. Absolutely. Here we go. You ready? Evan, you tweeted, Jay-Z and Beyonce are going to keep dropping these surprise albums on y'all until you stop setting up new emails to get free title, uh, trials on title. <laughs> yes. That's true. I, I mean, how many do you have at this point? I just, I have the one. I have no problem subscribing to title. Oh, you do? Yeah, I don't use it all the time. I only use it, you know, like within the, the range of the releases, but it's fine. I'm ready. You, I don't like surprises. You've been one. I'm the one. <laughs> I'm the only one. Okay, tweet of the day. I laughed so hard reading this this morning, I could barely speak, so let's see how this goes. It's a book, so, so be patient. It's from Merck's. Here we All go. Right. Beyonce. Blue. Blue. What? Beyonce. <laughs> Blue. Oh my God. Walks down three flights of stairs, across West Wing, through foyer, down another flight of stairs, outside, a lap around the pool, <laughs> back inside, past the museum, into the living room. Yes. Beyonce, can you hand me the remote? <laughs> even Beyonce's gonna be a mom, you know? It's, mom it's a, trolling. It's just, it's just, even Beyonce's gonna be a mom. Oh, it's a big house though, it's a big house. But seriously, happy B-Day to be. Happy birthday, Beyonce. Thank you. Yes, Bless you. thank you for everything. Next, we are going live from the district. Back into the mess. Welcome back. It has been 16 hours since the president has, no has tweeted, and oh I think God. that's worth noting. Uh, <laughs> knock on wood. But listen, we're going live from the district with BuzzFeed News legal editor Chris Geithner. Good morning, Chris. Hello, guys. <laughs> Just a little on edge about that. Just, just a lot going on this morning. We're just a little, uh, okay, so we are an hour or so into the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings. Looks a little crazy on the timeline. Um, what stood <laughs> out to you so far? Um, well, what stood out is that uh, we we haven't really begun. Um, the, the Democrats came in as uh, Chairman Chuck Grassley started to get the hearing underway with a series of objections and uh, complaints about the way that the documents have been handled, the way that the preparations for the hearing have been handled. And uh, Senator Blumenthal of Connecticut uh, has asked for the committee to adjourn until they can resolve those issues. Uh, thus far, uh, Chuck Grassley, the chair, has denied that request, but it's sort of been this back and forth uh, questions over documents that were just turned over over the weekend, questions about documents that have been withheld under claims of executive privilege. Uh, it's, it's just been nonstop. And then on top of that, there's been probably, I'd say, at least a, a half dozen sets of, of protesters in the audience who have, have uh, piped up and had their uh, complaints aired uh, and they've been swiftly escorted out of the hearing. Yeah, and, and we want to get your story on, on the secret sealed documents in a moment, but one more quick question about this morning, this first hour. Is it fair to say that these delays, um, these attempts at delays uh, from the Democrats is kind of the main lever they have to pull because once the, the hearings move on, like they, they don't have the numbers? I mean, it, it, NBC is reporting that this was sort of a, a planned thing over the weekend. Um, I, I think probably in large response to the, the news about the, the 100,000 pages of documents uh, that are being withheld due to executive privilege claims. Um, but the, the, this, this is... I mean, I, I think the best way of looking at this is, I mean, it is one of the few levers that Dems have to pull, but it, it, it is also sort of now now's the start of the hearing before it gets underway. Once it gets underway, it sort of uh, would be oddly placed for them to complain about these sort of sub 
procedural issues. Um, once he starts talking, once Judge Kavanaugh gives his opening statement, it would be a little weird procedurally to bring up these concerns. So, I mean, this is the time when, when they should be br brought up. Okay. All right, well, let's talk about it ourselves. Here's a tweet from you, Chris. My latest on the Kavanaugh docs. The Justice Department was behind the decision to keep 100,000 pages of Kavanaugh's record secret. So, Chris, why was the Justice Department choosing to keep these documents a secret? Well, we, we don't know, <laughs> which is, is one of the things that Democrats are complaining about. All 10 Democrats on the committee sent a letter to the White House asking them to withdraw this claim of privilege. Um, but what's happened here is that there's, there's actually been no, the, the president has, hasn't had to actually assert executive privilege. What happened is that George W. Bush, his office just as the former president has taken documents and is turning them over to the Senate Judiciary Committee. And that's outside of the normal process that would be the National Archives going through the documents and turning them over. And so they went through the office of George W. Bush to sort of try to speed things up. And as a result of that, what they did was George W. Bush's office then went to the Justice Department and the White House and said, okay, here are the potential documents. Tell us which of these you would claim executive privilege on, and we won't turn over those. And so it's sort of been this, this outside of the normal process, half invoking of executive privilege in order to withhold documents, uh, which really leaves Democrats in a position of, of not being able to directly challenge it other than what the Dems did, which was ask the White House to basically tell George W. Bush's office to turn over these documents. But if they don't do it, there's no, no real... Uh, leverage for them to try and get them because the the this is just George W. Bush voluntarily turning them over. Here's my question. Um, this is all so messy. <laughs> and as Kirsten Baptiste just noticed, like crazy. It, it's really messy. <laughs> it's really, really messy. Okay, so my question is like, is this unusually messy or um, is it just like the mess is out in the open because the stakes are so high for this judicial appointment? No, this is unusually messy. And that's, I mean, that's the whole discussion of going to George W. Bush's office. I mean, I, I literally spent all weekend going through this with the lawyers and, and talking with them about how this process is working and why it happened, because this, this is not how it's normally done. Normally, the National Archives would review the documents and they would send a notice to both the former president and the current president saying, the these are the documents we're going to turn over. Do you have any objections to any of them? And then the, the current or former president would have to in, assert a, executive privilege. But this time, because the Republicans want to get this nomination through quickly, we, we've talked about this before, they, they, the goal is just to get this nomination through. And because they want to do that, they went through this outside process that has never happened before through George W. Bush office, and he's hired a lawyer, Bill Burke, to, to lead the document review. With There are three outside firms that are involved with this, and they've been pushing these documents out as quickly as they can, and they've also been withholding a lot of documents. And because it's not through the National Archives, we don't have any any real way of judging what's going wrong if something's going wrong. We just have to sort of take take their words for it. And that's why the Democrats' best thing that they can do is sort of push back by, by asking for more documents, right. whether it's in a letter to White House Counsel Don McGahn, whether it's in committee this morning through repeated uh, objections. That, that, that's their only basis here because the National Archives hasn't really told us much of anything yet. Because hmm. their review, I mean, their review, they said they weren't going to even get through the first stage of reviewing the documents themselves until late October. But that was, was too late for what the Republicans wanted because they want this nomination through well before the midterm elections. Hmm. 
Well, The Washington Post tweeted this morning, hours before Kavanaugh nomination hearings, Bush lawyers, and you've kind of referred to this, Bush lawyer releases 42,000 pages of documents to Judiciary Committee. I just... Uh, are these the same documents? Are these 42,000 other documents? <laughs> Who has time? I mean, here's the thing. This, this guy... Brett Kavanaugh worked in the George W. Bush White House from 2001 through 2006 when he went on to the D.C. Circuit. He was nominated by George W. Bush for the D.C. Circuit. He worked in the White House for that that five-year period, and two of those years he was in the White House Counsel's Office. After that, he was the president's staff secretary, which is not a... a, a a, a general secretarial role that is like the key gatekeeper to getting documents to the president, uh, coordinating document review among White House officials to review things before they go to the president. And so we're talking about millions of documents that exist about his time. The The whole process was, was minimized initially because Chuck Grassley only requested documents from his those two years when he was in White House counsel's office. So that, that was the first thing that upset Democrats. Then when the National Archives said it was going to take till late October to get even those documents, that's when they went to this outside process with George W. Bush's office. Then on top of that, we had these 100,000 documents from that set that were withheld because of executive privilege concerns. Then you've got all of that sitting there. Then on Sunday night, on Friday night, sort of Bill Burke, this lawyer who was overseeing the George W. Bush documents, he sent a letter that laid out where all the document review went, um, what documents they turned over, what was withheld, what was still being processed. This 42,000 was some of those that were still being processed. So this is not a part of the 100,000. It's not a part of the staff secretary files. This is from the the council office time files, and it was 42,000 that they were still reviewing that he had said on Friday were still possibly going to come. All righty. <laughs> Chris, I always appreciate, like, like, you are such a brilliant legal mind, and, and I'm like, I get it a little more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a mess. It's a mess. It, it's, it, it's really, it is sort of, it it is unprecedented. It isn't the way we normally go about this. And that's why you're seeing sort of the the really unexpected morning this morning for the first first day of a a confirmation hearing for a justice. And we're just getting started. Chris, thank you for joining us this morning. Thanks. All right, what a ride. Uh, Up next, uh, I'm speaking with Aaron Ross Coleman about how fast food and sodium in particular is affecting the health of African-Americans Stay tuned. (laughs) All right, it's time to go there. BuzzFeed News tweeted this. The overabundance of fast food restaurants in poor black neighborhoods is partly to blame for high rates of high blood pressure among black Americans. Here to talk to me about this important story phenomenon is BuzzFeed News contributor Aaron Ross Coleman. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thank you for writing this piece. Um, I I saw it and I immediately was like, I want to talk to him about this. Um, So the American Heart Association says 75% of black Americans are likely to develop high blood pressure by the age of 55. Um, And I think we hear stats like this often. Why is it so prevalent? Um, it's really interesting. There's some like causal factors, things like fast food restaurants mm-hmm. being in these neighborhoods, as well as uh, what some of the, the doctors have thought is actually uh, an, in- an increased um, likelihood of black Americans getting high blood pressure. So mm-hmm. they actually suggest that they consume less sodium. Okay, less sodium. Um, why are fast food restaurants partly to blame? Because as I was reading your piece, I was thinking about, you know, when I was living in Harlem, living in Bed-Stuy, and just like Popeyes, and da 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 How does that play into this, and sodium? Right, it's really interesting. So one, these vendors actually have really high levels of sodium in the food. Like, I remember um, moving to New York City in 2015 and seeing the, af- the uh, menu after the sodium law passed, mm-hmm. and seeing that even like a two-piece chicken combo at Popeyes had more sodium than eating a total day. Wow. So that's really interesting. So it's the fact that one, the vendors have a lot of sodium in the food, mm-hmm. but then two, they deliberately um, 
try their best to concentrate in African-American neighborhoods. Yeah. Which is something that I tease out in the piece, just talking about how they use different advertising techniques and uh, incorporating black culture, like jumping the broom mm -hmm. and uh, like basketball games, uh, investing in Essence Fest and, and things like that. So it's the fact that the food has really high levels of sodium, like mm -hmm. more salt in a day for two pieces of chicken. Mm -hmm. um, and the fact that they're really concentrating um, in the neighborhoods and in advertising. Mm -hmm. so. I, I was wondering, you know, this this impacts all of us. This impacts our families. You talk about your own family and and and, and trying to have these conversations and navigating health. Um, and and I just wondered, um, it's one thing to have the data and you know to, to read the news reports. It's another thing to sit down with your mom right. um, and try to talk about changing food habits. What have those conversations been like? It's so interesting. It's conversations, but it's also experiences. I just remember I opened up the piece talking about going to the uh, grocery store and using the blood pressure machine and, you know, like how that can determine the trajectory of a day, whether or not um, my mom, you know, if her blood pressure was too high that day. But it's also I remember growing up and my brother just being young, like we would go as like kids and he had like high blood pressure as a child, getting like physicals as kids. Or It's just something that you learn to live with. And it's actually interesting because, you know, you go to other people's house and everybody has a way of coping with it, whether it's like using Mrs. Dash or just, you know, being really, really um, observant. But uh, it's conversations, but initially it just comes as like a lifestyle mm -hmm. um, of trying to, to manage salt and stay away from it. Um, but the interesting thing that I think for this story is that living in New York City where the salt law is passed, you see an additional level of transparency. Right. So you may not have even known that there was that much salt in, you know, a uh, a few pieces of chicken. Right, yeah. right. But now people are getting yeah. that information. So would you say the, the this law, at least in New York City, has been pretty effective? It's interesting. They debated in the case on whether or not it actually stops people from eating the menu okay. or eating the, the food with more sodium, but at least you want people to know. So the idea is that if you walk into a restaurant and you see something has more salt in a total day and another menu item doesn't, that you could order that one. Because before, it's kind of just like you have no clue. Idea. Yeah, yeah, you didn't even know. Absolutely, absolutely. How are uh, fast food restaurants, companies, and lobbyists uh, fighting this kind of legislation? Yeah, that's something I found really interesting. So if you look at the court case, um, in 2015, when New York first announced the law, the fast food lobby actually sued the city, um, saying and arguing that the science that the, uh, the health department and, and the other uh, city officials were using was shaky um, and not reliable. And they actually argued against the American Heart Association, the American Medical Association, basically saying that uh, sodium is not connected, or there's no clear connection to sodium and salt and high blood pressure. Hmm. So you really have to make up your mind. Do you want to believe the American Heart Association, the American Medical Association, or the National Restaurant Association when it comes to your health? Wow. And I'm going to choose the doctors, you know? Okay. <laughs> yeah. You're like, I, I think I know who I'm going to. Yeah, 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 for sure. All right. Well, um, thank you for writing this piece. I'm so glad BuzzFeed Reader published it, and it's out here. We need to keep having these conversations yeah, thanks for having to change me. those experiences. Um, Aaron, thank you so much. Up next, um, you'll see my conversation with actor and comedian Nick Dodani. He is so sweet and so fun. All right, thank you so much. Hello, my queens. I'm here with actor and comedian Nick Dodani, and who is starring in Atypical Season 2 and the reboot of Murphy Brown. Yes, children, it's back. Um, so let's start talking about atypical. Yeah, um, let's do it. Your character is on the spectrum, on the autism spectrum, and his friendship with Zahid um, is really important. Well, why is that uh, relationship such important for the characters? Uh, well, I feel like every person deserves someone like Zahid mm. who will just kind of love you for who you are and mm -hmm. and and not treat you any different for your quirks and mm -hmm. your oddities. And so I feel like Zahid is, is is that guy for Sam. And it's such a fun thing for me to play. And it's been such a huge learning experience for mm. me. Um, you know, because going to the show, I think I had so many blind spots and misconceptions about folks on the spectrum. And right. being able to play someone who uh, is best friends with someone on the spectrum has, has really kind of opened up things for me. Absolutely. And I think it's interesting, I mean, the way um, autism and people on the spectrum, the way it's been portrayed over, you know, the last few years, it's not always great, has no. not always been accurate or helpful. Um, so going into working on Atypical, um, how did you and the team navigate? So um, Robbie Rashid, who's the creator of the show, uh, she uh, spent a lot of time um, consulting with folks on the spectrum and uh, researching and, and being very intentional with with the writing. And uh, this season, we got to work with uh, David Finch, who's, this, who's an author on the spectrum, who wrote the book, uh, Journal of Best Practices, mm -hmm. which Keir used to develop his character. Mm -hmm. And he was just an incredible person to work with. And, you know, 
uh, helped us navigate what we were doing, called us out when we needed to be called out, and, and told us when we were doing things correctly. Uh, we had a bunch of actors on the spectrum uh, this season playing both um, neurotypicals and folks on the spectrum. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, uh, I feel like this season uh, was a lot more inclusive. Mm. And I think that's the key to any kind of representation is actually including the voices of the folks we're actually trying to represent. Absolutely, and make it all better. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, well, for your character in particular for this season, is there something you're especially excited for people to see? Um, yeah, you know, I feel like season one was all about dating and sex, mm -hmm. and uh, this season is more about Sam just trying to find independence, trying to figure out college, what he wants to do with his life, how to deal with his messed up family, and, and Zahid kind of helps him navigate that as well. So we get to see more of Zahid that is not just like the horn dog, uh, awkward boy, uh, which is fun. It was great. It's a demographic. It is absolutely a demographic. Yeah. I know a lot of, a lot of guys like Zahid. Yeah, totally. Um, but yeah, so I'm excited for that. Cool. Yeah. Well, also, of course, you are going to be on the new, improved, the rebooted, the reinvigorated. Yes. The revival. Uh, the revival, darling. Uh, yes. Murphy Brown, which is really exciting because uh, news and the way we think about media has changed so much yeah. um, since you know the show was on the first time. Um, where does your character kind of fit in to this so new So I play Brown? Pat Patel, who's okay. the director of social media and technology. Okay. Uh, so. I'm, you know, I'm millennial reporting for duty. Uh, and my job is to kind of bring everyone else into the 21st century, mm -hmm. talk about how social media has impacted mm -hmm. the news cycle and talk about how technology affects the way we consume news mm -hmm. and, and, and interpret news and all that and kind of just be the young person. <laughs> <laughs> the official young the person. Official young person the official young person, the official brown person, mm -hmm. the official, I'm just, I'm doing it all. I love it. Yeah. And, and how does, I mean, I've heard that there are allusions to like a Fox News kind of like competitor. Yeah, yeah, so Murphy's son Avery works for the Wolf Network. Okay. Um, which oh. is, yeah, which is a, the, the Fox <laughs> News, uh, not very veiled <laughs> reference to Fox News. And he's like the lone liberal voice okay. on this conservative network. Uh -huh. And um, he, he's in a competing show with mm -hmm. his mom, uh, and and I don't want to give away too much, but it's about that dynamic and how that tension kind of unfolds. Okay, were you a fan of the original Murphy Brown? So my mom was a huge fan, it was okay. a little before my time, but I used to watch reruns of my mom when I was okay. a kid, uh, and she's freaking out <laughs> that I'm on this. She's so, shook. So I love she is it. shook, yeah, so she's really excited. Weirdly, I remember I remember Murphy Brown being on when I was younger, and I remember her voice more than, and, and, and one, just seeing, oh, and it, like, I was like, she looks like she's taking care of herself and doing her own oh, thing. Yeah. She's not like, a housewife, but just you just it's like, ooh, strong lady. Oh yeah, she's a badass. Yeah, yeah. No, Murphy's a badass. Candace Bergen, who plays Murphy Brown, mm -hmm. is a badass. Uh, <laughs> it is so surreal working with her and the original cast. Yeah, uh, it's been pretty cool. I love it. Well, of course, we're here at BuzzFeed, um, and in 2016, uh, you had a viral moment kind of ah. <laughs> linked um, based on a stand-up comedy. Yeah. What was that experience like? Uh, that was pretty crazy to me. <laughs> Because <laughs> I like started doing stand up not long before that and just kind of threw, okay. threw the video up online for mm -hmm. my friends and family to watch mm -hmm. and judge me. Um, but then you guys picked it up and mm -hmm. ran with it, and that was pretty cool. You know, my anxiety spiked. Uh, Immensely. Cool, um, cool, cool, cool. Yeah, cool. yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I'm not blaming you exactly, <laughs> but um, I'm blaming all of you. <laughs> uh, but no, it was great. It was so yeah. cool. It was so amazing to, to you know have the BuzzFeed audience kind of look at my stand up and watch it. And it was really cool to see how many folks in India, especially, mm -hmm. resonated with it. Because I know BuzzFeed India is like is pretty it's big. Huge. It's huge. Yeah. Audience. Um, and I just it, it, I didn't expect my stand up to kind of resonate there because mm -hmm. I kind of I think I had this misconception that there wasn't really like a queer audience mm -hmm. that was like at least. Local. Um, obviously, it's there, but mm -hmm. I didn't know that it would be received with such warmth and, and excitement. So that was really cool. I love. I, I do love to joke that BuzzFeed is run by queens. Uh, it, so yeah. you know, we were ready. We were ready. But what's <laughs> queens like rising queens? But no, really. What has it been like? You know, um, in terms of your comedy from that kind of moment, you, you do, of course, as we all do, have all of these different facets of identity. You have your family, um, Indian identity, being gay. Um, has anything changed in terms of what you feel more comfortable uh, joking about as you've become more well known? Yeah, I mean, I think you know the the biggest change for me is that now my like whole extended family knows that I'm gay, mm -hmm. and it didn't require any coming out, which was kind of cool. That uh, helps. Yeah, which is nice. <laughs> I didn't actually have to do anything okay. personally. My favorite thing though is when I have really awkward relatives who want to show their support, but I don't know how, so they just come out to me and are like, "I saw your stand up. It's very good. <laughs> we really like your stand up." 
And it's like, okay, I get it. It's like, okay, <laughs> thanks, we thanks for the love. Go back. Yeah, okay. I know. That's uh, sweet, though. No, it's so sweet. It's 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 very <laughs> sweet. Um, and you know, I think it's. Uh, I never intended to like come out publicly, right. I guess, but it kind of just happened with that stand-up, and I, I'm really happy it did because mm -hmm. the idea of not being out it just that sounds way more exhausting than anything else. So it's it's kind of been a really cool experience to be just open. I love it. I love yeah. it. And we, and we get to benefit from this because we get to see all of these different aspects of your talent. Um, a, a conversation I get to have with people pretty consistently is, you know, as we think about representation in Hollywood, um, new roles we get to see, you know, I'm just, I cannot stop tweeting about to all the boys I've ever loved, to all the men's I've ever grindered. <laughs> um, but so I wanted to ask you, you know, um, is there a role in particular you would very much still like to see yourself play? I really, have you seen Weekend? No. You haven't seen Weekend? No. Oh, is that the, the gay movie where they meet each other and they're yeah. going out of town? Okay, okay, yeah, okay. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. I was like, what kind of gay are you? <laughs> <laughs> and you weren't going to let me slide either. You were like, oh, no. girl, I will hit you with my hair. Yes. Uh, no, it's, I, I would love, I mean, it, it's just like a very sweet mm -hmm. gay romantic. It sounds romantic. like the predecessor to Looking. Yeah, so it was the same. The, the, the guy who created Looking, Andrew okay. Hague, and directed that. Um, may have written it. Um, but yeah, it's just like this really sweet, dramatic, funny, sexy, romantic movie. Um, and I would love to be able to play that kind of like romantic gay lead. Mm -hmm. I just feel like you don't see that a lot, right. especially with like people of color Absolutely. in those roles. I feel like that would be like a very fun role mm -hmm. to play. Yeah, I, I would love to see it. Yeah. All right, well, Hollywood, Twitter. Yeah. Make it work. Do your thing, Twitter, as the kids say. Anyway, Nick, thank you so thank much. Thank you so for much. Joining yeah, us. Thanks I for having this. me. You can watch Atypical Season 2 September 7th on Netflix, and Murphy Brown premieres September 27th on CBS. Wolf Network's going to be shook. <laughs> Up next, more AM to DM. Thanks, Nick. Thank you. <laughs> Here's a tweet from Vulture's Emily Yoshida. Aside from a few incredible exceptions, 2018 has been pretty bad for movies so far. But I have a very strong feeling this fall is going to be an embarrassment of riches. Well, BuzzFeed News culture writer and film critic Allison Wilmore is here to talk about movies she's excited for this fall. Hey, Allison, so do you agree that this year hasn't been that great for movies so far? Uh, I don't know. It's not been like an overwhelmingly wonderful year, though I feel like this has been a pretty solid summer for fun movies. But this fall definitely promises to be like lots of excellent stuff coming so up. Obviously, this weekend, and I guess for the past few months, everyone's been talking about A Star is Born. I kind of have not been purposely ignoring it, but <laughs> kind of just been ignoring the all the, you know, drama and like a hype around it. Sure. Is it worth the hype? Is it going to be like campy good or is it going to be like actually good? So it just had its premiere at the Venice Film Festival and the early word is it's good good. You know, All right. Obviously this is like uh, Lady Gaga's first big film role and it's also Bradley Cooper's directorial debut in addition to him taking the starring role. Remake of this movie that Barbara Streisand has starred in, that Judy Garland has starred in, so a classic Hollywood tale of a rise and fall. Um, I, you know, I'm looking forward to it. That trailer sold me. <laughs> like, it looks melodramatic in a really good way. I don't know. His, I can't know if I can take Bradley Cooper seriously, <laughs> but okay, we'll see, we'll see. Okay, so... We are going on now to action movies. You have one that you say we should look forward to. Yeah. Uh, it is Widows. And I think it's starring Viola Davis, right? It is. It's also not just any action movie. It is an action movie from Steve McQueen, director of 12 Years a Slave. Okay. Uh, Oscar-winning director. So it's going to be really interesting to see him kind of cut loose. But like er early word on this movie, which is about four women whose husbands are like professional bank robbers, I believe. Uh, they're the widows who are then pressured to take over for the job um, by the associates of their husbands. So Ooh. yeah, it's got like a really interesting thriller premise. And the cast is incredible. You know, you mentioned Viola Davis, Michelle Rodriguez, Elizabeth Debicki, and everyone's been talking about Daniel Kaluuya as like the antagonist who looks like, in the trailer at least, he's doing some really good kind of threatening eyes. <laughs> I mean, Viola Davis in an action movie, I mean, I feel like at least we're going to get some good memes out of it, if nothing else. Yeah, it looks promising, I have to say. I'm really, really looking forward to it. Okay, so we were talking a little bit about Tire We Are of, of sequels before we went on air, but Hollywood obviously loves a sequel. Are there any good sequels coming out this fall that we should give a chance? I'm definitely very curious about Creed 2. I mean, I loved the first Creed. It really, like, 
blew me away. I thought it should have gotten Best Picture, and it wasn't even nominated. Um, it, what I'm very curious about for Creed 2 is that you've got a lot of the cast returning, including, of course, Michael B. Jordan, uh, but you don't have Ryan Coogler, the director, returning. He, you know, was a little busy with Black Panther, so. <laughs> Some other movie we haven't heard of. Yeah, yeah, it seems to have worked out okay for him. Uh, but so there's a new director with this one, but, you know, you've got a lot of the same team returning. Uh, I'm curious to see. Also, Dolph Lundgren from, uh, he's also in the original Rocky movies is is gonna be in this one so really curious I wonder if they'll be a little more hype around it because Michael B Jordan is such a thing now he's such a star now I know um, and you know maybe this time around like it'll get kind of serious attention in addition to kind of box office well okay lastly we have Moonlight won best picture obviously and now Barry Jenkins has a new film can you tell us a little bit about that sure it's called if Beale Street could talk and it's based on a James Baldwin novel and no one's seen it yet so we don't know a lot about it but the it's trailers a little, cute out. little kid yeah it's a, <laughs> it's a love story it's a you know the story is like a love story between two people and there's a, one of them is falsely accused of a crime so there's a lot of drama but it's set in Harlem and the movie is gonna actually have a premiere up in the theater in Harlem, so I think that's really neat that they especially pushed for that to be like in the neighborhood where the novel is set. Oh, cool. Yeah. Well, I live in Harlem now, so maybe I'll go see it. Okay, <laughs> I actually misspoke. We actually have one more film. Uh, Christmas, only 112 days away. Oh my gosh. What's a movie that might get us into the spirit? Oh, well, this is interesting. <laughs> well, you know, with fall, you've got a lot of these big kind of prestigious movies, but it's always good to make a little time to catch an indie or two. And I wanted to give a shout out to Anna and the Apocalypse, which is maybe the only only Scottish Christmas zombie musical you will ever see. Oh, okay. Yes, and it's pretty delightful. It's uh, it's about someone who's graduating from high school, dealing with some love issues, fighting with her father, and then also the end of the world happens. And Christmas. And there are songs. And there are songs. And Christmas. <laughs> and Christmas. I'm very intrigued. Okay, well, that definitely sounds like something that maybe we can go see around the holidays. Absolutely. I don't know. Perfect I don't Christmas know. movie. Yeah, exactly. Well, Allison, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. I'm, I'm a little more excited about movies at the end of the year. Up next, Saeed and Isaac are reading your tweets. We have a tweet here from uh, Jolie. Um, I need the ferocity to write the script for to all the men's I've ever grindered when the rainbow was enough yesterday. I like you added that when the rainbow was enough yesterday. To all the men's I ever grinded. How would that script go? What's, uh, what's act one? What's act two? What's I act three? We all know, friends. <laughs> We'll I'm gonna leave but it at that. This is what I love. I'm so excited to talk to Noah Centineo. Mm -hmm. And like he's in another movie for Netflix. I need to oh, watch yeah, that. Oh yeah, he's killing it. On. But I gotta say, I love for once, I am the one on the timeline who's being mostly appropriate in stark contrast Y'all nasty. I My DMs is a whole thing. I'll show you. I applaud Thank you, you, sir. I When you show restraints, <laughs> it is rare. And I applaud you. Well listen, Princess Leia, you had this adorable comment. Isaac is back, and I'm crying in the club. Mm. Oh, thank yeah. you. That You're is, not allowed to leave anymore. That is very nice. I miss you. That, that's, I like that they made me read my own tweet about how great I am. <laughs> but no, seriously, I really appreciate that's it. That's, that's really nice. I am also crying in the club. Yeah, I'm can we back up? Why the hell are you in a club, girl? I'm happy to be back. Tuesday morning. <laughs> she she lives her, let her live her life. No judgments. Come. All right, all right. Um, here's a tweet from Queer Mermaid about the New Yorker Festival. Remember that? Uh, the thing I cannot get over is, how did they think this would go? This was the only plausible scenario. This own was so avoidable. Yeah, That's cell what phone. I keep coming back to. I just want to know who was in the room when this decision was made and like the rollout, like I said, we were talking about it earlier, right? Mm -hmm. It's Labor Day morning. Did they like think they were going to sneak it past right. people? I saw uh, Rachel Fertilizer tweeted out. She said, the New Yorker owes us a day off, to be honest. Because it's stole a Labor Day. It's so wild to me that they thought they were going to just like put this out there and that, that they were surprised by the backlash. Yeah. Um, I'm Just Me also shared thoughts on Steve Bannon. Dangerously naive of the New Yorker and Malcolm Gladwell types to think that they can debate Bannon. History has shown us that some ideas, quote, are without merit and should not be given a platform. Um, I want to say this about David Remnick. I, know, I mean, I came out the gate, you know, this morning. And I mean it. I mean everything I said. Um, I will also say... In my interactions with him, I've gone to a few like parties he's hosted. David Ribnick is one of the nicest, most gentlemanly, I mean, just 
a world-class guy, um, which is part of, I think, the problem here, mm. um, that this idea of, like, no, we can have a great conversation, and I will, you know, I'm like, this is, my dude, like, things have changed, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. and, and, and though he is wonderful and everything, um, the fact is, I think there is a kind of arrogance um, to the thinking we're seeing from Malcolm Gladwell based on his tweets and David Rimnick that like, well, I will be the one. Mm -hmm. I will be the one who, who can crack Steve Bannon, who, as Dave Weigel points out, does interviews like every week. Mm -hmm. You're not going to be the one. And with Gladwell, it's like he's going all the way back to a debate that happened decades and decades mm -hmm. ago to like be like, well, this one time. It's like, all right. Yeah, Gladwell, uh, you just tipped that point right on back. <laughs> okay. Anyway, thank you to our guest. Also, Malcolm Gladwell's Sorry, read the thank yous. I was like, I'll be nice and <laughs> back. Okay, thank you to our guests, Nick Dodani, Dave Weigel, Charlie Warzel, Chris Geidner, Aaron Ross Coleman, Stephanie McNeil, and Allison Wilmore. Absolutely, it was a great show. I'm so happy to be back. Woo! We will both be back here tomorrow, 10 a.m. We can't wait to hang out with you some more. Good luck, have a blessed Tuesday. See you at the hearings. <laughs> Woo.